0: All right, everybody, we have got a whopper of a show for you. If you thought that August vacation extended to the news, uh, that vacation is over.
1: No, and then I'm going to do a uh, after the news, which we've got a lot of I'm going to do part four of the blueprint, what it means to have a bias for
0: action. Everybody loves the blueprint, including me. It is so fantastic. First up, though, we're going to cover some earnings reports that came with some interesting announcements. Yes, MicroStrategy's Michael Saylor is stepping down as CEO, going to become executive chairman.
1: We're going to talk about what the plan is there for the Bitcoin holding company with some
0: SaaS revenue, I guess. I guess the Bitcoin holdings did not perform that well in q2, as you might imagine down about a billion dollars. So we'll cover that and also Robin Hood laying off almost a quarter of the company.
1: Yes, doing a riff, not a layoff reduction in force. We talk a little bit about uh, what this means uh, for the company and also the, the, the industry writ large.
0: Uh, and then we're going to discuss Airbnb. People are just doing the nomad thing in the Airbnbs. And then we're actually going to kick off the news with startup stories. Next up, actually talking about a major player in the early stage startup ecosystem, Y Combinator, shrinking its cohort size by 40%. Why is that?
1: Why would they do that now? That's We have five or six theories. We're going to go through each one of them. Uh, and then we'll wrap with uh, my blueprint. It's going to be a great show. Yeah, stick with us.
2: This week in Startups is brought to you by iTrust Capital. Did you know that you can invest in crypto through your retirement account and still get the same tax advantages as a traditional IRA? Visit itrust.capital slash twist to start investing today. Brave is an internet privacy company on a mission to protect your personal info online. Download Brave today at brave.com twist to browse faster, search privately, and so much more, all in a single click. And Visa, are you a small business owner? Did you know that Visa's online small business hub has tools, discounts, and resources to help you run your business? Learn more at visa.com slash small business hub.
1: Welcome to the show, everybody. Molly, I saw some news in our group chat uh, that Y Combinator is decreasing the number of startups in its summer 2022 accelerator by Mm -hmm. 40% from its winter batch, which had 414 startups participating. Take us through this story, uh, which Kate Clark reported in the information.
0: Which, of course, she did, because she's yeah. amazing at this. Uh, yeah, yeah apparently the summer 2022 batch only includes about 250 startups. YC said the reduction in batch size was due to the macroeconomic downturn, changes in the venture funding environment, and then, of course, YC going back to in-person. And Y YCommender has been making more changes to its program uh, lately. Remember, they recently changed the standard deal, actually, from 125000 to 500000 And the information article notes that in June, YC CEO Michael Siebel said that the uh, outfit had the budget to fund 1,400 startups under the new standard deal, meaning, you know, by back of the envelope math, they've got $700 million to work with. So, like, what does this actually mean? Are they cutting the batch size because they're putting in more money?
1: No. I think what this means is that...
0: Also, that's a lot. We have, what, seven?
1: (laughs) Well, I only like to do some because I like to get to know the companies. I, yeah. I never aspired to do like this, like sort of factory farming version of startups. Because for me, it's much more personal, right? And so, and you know, they've got you know two or three hundred people working there to 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 do this kind of scale. And I think it's great that it exists in the ecosystem. Mm-hmm,
0: um, mm-hmm. Now, that's a lot,
1: but yes, the the challenge with this is you know it dilutes the brand to have this many companies go through it. Uh, a bit. And that's caused, I wouldn't say reputation damage. But I do think people look at YC much differently than they did in the early Paul Graham days when it was, you know, let's say 30 companies, it -hmm. felt more bespoke, it felt like, you know, if you were going, you know, each of the companies really did have to fight to get in there. And now it feels like, well, they're just getting an option on every company and at the valuation they pay, which is 2 million bucks. You know, there's no reason not to take that option. So Mm -hmm. I always say, Listen, if Harvard is such a good school, why aren't there 10 Harvards around the world? Why don't they replicate it? And that is uh, what Y Combinator did. They went from these 20 30, 40 batch sizes to 400. So they 10 x it. So I give them credit for that. Because that means more people get to experience their program, which is good. They get the Y Combinator stamp, then the counter argument people would have is okay, I, I just what being a Y Combinator company meant
0: Ten years ago is just different than what it means now. Right. It's not uh, that exclusive. If you're yes. how many ba- how many cohorts are there a year? Do we know? I think they do too. Winter and summer. They do too. Uh, so you got yeah. like eight hundred. You yes. had yeah over eight hundred companies. Just woof. It, was, it clearly it was got just way pretty, too big. Way too big. Right. I mean, eight hundred out of every single possible startup all year long is still probably a relatively small number, but it's not. It certainly doesn't feel like wildly exclusive at that point. So it sounds like they got too big, maybe unmanageable. And then when they raised the minimum investment, it got more expensive.
1: You know, the way that works is you get the 125 for 7%. And then I think they put the other 375 in at whatever your terms are when you graduate, which, by the way, is what right. I created, you know, seven years ago with the launch accelerator. So they, they got that idea for me. Um, and it's a great idea uh, to give myself credit for it. Because a lot of times when you graduate, uh, giving them more money, uh, you know, helps grow the company. And you can get your 7% to maybe get up to 10% ownership. And I think that's what they saw. You know, they had very little ownership in Airbnb or Dropbox or a lot of those great companies by the end. And Mm -hmm. you know, you the way you win in this game is by continuing to invest. So I think they did everything right in that regard. But maybe they're looking at it saying, well, will we be able to raise another billion dollar fund and keep up this pace, right? Because if they were going at this pace, and they had the budget to fund 1400 startups under the new standard deal, if you're going through four or 500 per class, that means they have two more classes to go or three more classes to go. And here, if they go down to 200, they got seven classes to go. So this could be a recognition also of maybe they would not be able to raise as big of a fund in the market in the current conditions, it's possible. Yeah, it could also be that maybe less people, Molly are starting companies. So if less people are starting companies, then maybe they're saying, well, this is gonna if we try to hit a certain number, which, you know, would be crazy if the quality goes down. So maybe they're saying, hey, we're not finding 400 people that hit the benchmark we're looking for, for a YC company. So let's go down to accepting half as many. So if you got half as many applications, you'd have to lower your standards. Just like Harvard might be right, have mm-hmm. to lower their standards if they went 10x, and YC went 10x. So you know, maybe it, they don't want to lose it. Or it could be they when they graduate. The other theory I had was if they graduate, do they have a hard time raising money? So then they've just got all these orphans, and then they all come back to them and like, hey, you know, you there isn't enough VC infrastructure to absorb all the YC companies, right?
0: That is what I wondered. Is what does this say about any potential weakness? That You know, there has been this prevailing theory, and TechCrunch uh, even notes, investors have argued that pre-seed and seed stage startups are, you know, immune in some ways to macroeconomic tensions because it's so removed from late stage valuations. But it does, you know, I've been asking you over and over about this, like, growth, like, what comes next mm-hmm. thing, and yeah. it does sound like it's not different funds, like, people just invest at different amounts, and they change how much they're investing, but... It, is there the Valley of Death? Yes. If you if you send so many baby turtles, like I say all the time that our job is kind of like sending baby turtles toward the ocean, and we know a lot of yeah. them aren't going to make it. But it sounds like there's a lot more birds in the air right now.
1: <laughs> well, or a longer trip to the ocean. Or a longer trip but, to the ocean, right. It, 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 you know, you know <laughs> that's actually the issue is I think a lot of folks, a lot of investors are slowing down their investment pace. Uh, you're seeing this in the meetings we're having where people came to us six months ago, mm-hmm. it was closing, uh, you know, we had to get on the train the train was leaving the station and then the train never left the station, they came back to us and said, Hey, you know, we didn't close, we made some cuts. And now we're, uh, you know, the business looks a lot different. We raised our prices. We cut our costs, so we doubled our prices. We cut our staff in half, and all of a sudden, we're only burning 25k a month instead of 100. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, well, that business looks totally different. Uh, maybe we would want to invest in that business since it's not burning through, you know, 1.2 million a year with 10k in revenue or whatever it is. So, you know, I think a lot of those changes uh, take a while for people to change their approach to running their business. And as we talked about just yesterday, with Uber turning the dials great segment, Uber had to make that change. That was a multi year change. Then you we talked about the um, that matrix we made the the, the four by four on the, you know, 16 quadrant matrix of like, <laughs> how much runway do you have? How profitable are you? This is all part of the same theme, which is unwinding what the strategies were in growth to what the strategies are in a bootstrapping environment. We're mm-hmm. in a bootstrapping environment right now. And I think a lot of founders and a lot of VCs were operating in a cynically reckless fashion, entitled fashion, reckless and entitled would be, you know, how you would describe the worst of it. VCs were being reckless, with how they were investing and the diligence they were doing the bets they were placing. And, uh, yeah, and some VCs were acting super entitled thinking they would just blow through a fund in 12 months and everything go up into the right, they didn't have to be thoughtful. And then founders, too, we're being mm-hmm. reckless with the dollars and entitled with the dollars, hey, this, I'm always gonna get my next round. The, the never ending bridge round is over. I know people who've raised two, three bridges. And each time like, yeah, I'm just gonna do another bridge for a million. And it's like, and it's gonna go up. So like, what would be the incentive then to be profitable, Molly? Well, now all the realities here, this reminds me very much of the time when I invested in Uber and thumbtack, where you just you had four or five people in your company, you tried to get to 10, 20 k in revenue. And you didn't really get distracted with anything but your product and your customers, right. And so this ultimately will be a good thing for the market. And it seems like a very wise decision for Y Combinator to hunker down and, and maybe they lay off, you know, half the Y Combinator team or a third of the team, if they don't need that many people to do 400, you know, that would be the next
0: shoe to drop would be oh, you think? Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, if, you, if you're not going to be doing as many deals you may not need as many people. Now, if you had all those deals backed up, I'm sure you could, if you have all the management fees there, you could redeploy folks to uh, work on the existing portfolio. So I'm, I'm not saying that that's a likelihood. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, this is the painful stuff. And, I, you know, I think uh, one of our angel investments, Robin Hood is dealing with something similar, which yep. is, you know, when you are yeah. reducing your workforce, uh, you know, how do you do that? How do you do it effectively? How do you do mm-hmm. it wisely? Listen, a bunch of asset classes have been hit hard in 2022, but that could be where the opportunity is. And if you're a long-term believer in crypto, you need to check out iTrust Capital. iTrust lets you invest in crypto through your retirement account. It's basically a crypto IRA. This means you get the same tax advantages as a traditional IRA. And iTrust Capital has over two dozen of the most popular cryptocurrencies to invest in. And unlike the stock market, you can trade 24 hours a day if that's what you're into. The iTrust Capital platform is easy to use and it only takes a few minutes to create your account. Setting up an IRA is free and iTrust fees are low with a 1% fee per crypto transaction. So here's your call to action visit itrust.capital twist to start investing today. That's itrust.capital twist. Some important disclosures taxes and conditions may apply, fees apply. Cryptocurrencies are a speculative investment with the risk of loss high trust capital Inc does not provide legal investment or tax advice. So you should consult with a qualified legal investment or tax professional.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think what we're clearly seeing is, uh, and this is a perfect segue to the Robin Hood story is that n- no one is immune, right? Like why Combinator is not immune. We probably aren't. I, I don't think we have anything to announce about our programs. But you know, it's everybody's in a reaction mode. And yes, news came out. Uh, yesterday, I think, last evening, that Robinhood was laying off something like 20%, 23% uh, of its employees as retail trading slows. Remember back in April, Robinhood cut 9% of staff. The two rounds in total have cut more than 1,000 jobs from the company. And Bill Gurley had an interesting tweet about layoffs, which he euphemistically calls reduction in force, RIF. Well,
1: there's a technical thing here. Um, A riff and a layoff are two different things a layoff means you're intending to bring the employees back. So we're laying you off. markets have changed. Well, really? That's technically my understanding of it. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't know it either. But since people are using riff riff is like, you're not coming back. You know, and uh, and layoffs can become riffs. So that's why people use this term riff. Because you're reducing the workforce permanently, because market conditions have been so severe.
0: I did not know that that is fascinating. All right well then let's
1: go I didn't know riffs. it either. I, I just I was trying I literally typed into Google riff versus layoff because I, I yeah I hear one group I think the elder statesmen uh, you know kind of call them riffs because they've been through this before. <laughs> it's like these people are not coming back. there's also the term
0: furlough. Furlough which, is like you definitely could just be brought back. Layoff. Yes. it seems like the position might continue to exist even though you personally might not come back. A furlough, a I think force seems to be yeah. I'm looking up on Indeed. Yeah, is like furlough is temporary. Position's gone.
1: Yeah, furlough is like, if, if I said, Listen, you know, and I did see this happen to the dot com, let's say, let's say Y Combinator said, uh, Hey, listen, we need to cut costs by um, 15%. We're going to furlough everybody for three weeks in the summer, three weeks over the holidays, you're not going to get paid for six weeks. So you know, that's just the nature of this. So your salary is going down by, you know, approximately 13%. uh, And, you know, people who work in unions, or they work in Hollywood, it's basically unpaid vacation. And you know what, It's kind of cool, sometimes people really like that furlough better than a reduction in force a riff. So if I were to say to our team, hey, listen, we've got to make up this, you know, whatever. Uh, everybody's going to have their salaries reduced by whatever, 5%, but you're going to get that time off. People would be like, "Mm, am I going to leave the job? Or do I want to get more time off? Right. Like, if if I'm thinking about it, I'm like... Can, can we do that? It sounds good to me. I'd like to ski more days. But well, fuck it.
0: I mean, if I went to everybody in my company. You're just like, going to furlough yourself. Like I'm not, I like I'm sorry, to be I'm furloughed. All I'll, all furloughed. I'll take no. a furlough. I,
1: furlough I mean, right I think a lot of people, <laughs> if you said, we're going to take, fr- listen, this economy sucks. It's, it's brutal. We're taking Fridays off. Everybody's taking a 20% pay cut, but Fridays off, <laughs> not counting your vacation days. Like I mean, literally every Friday, it's like, it's not a I mean, hard to- no. We could take two shows on Thursday. (laughs) Bank an interview. (laughs) Summer Summer Friday. If I did a a for I mean, I literally, if I did this as a vote. And I said, Listen, there's 10 Fridays, we work 250 days a year, Mm -hmm. whatever it is, 260 days a year, 10 is whatever that is, uh, 1%. Uh, No, 10 is 3%. Everybody 3% pay cut or every Friday off this summer, what do you take?
0: I know where that vote's going. Totally. <laughs> Although, honestly, in this company, everybody, everybody would just work anyways. anyways. Yeah, everybody <laughs> would still work Fridays. Still so, yeah. yeah, so maybe not. But yeah, I, you're right. I looked it up on Indeed Reduction in Force Employee Termination. When a business decides it has no further need for the position, a layoff is considered temporary. If there are budgetary changes, uh, they can lay off the employee, but the, scum- the company still needs the position. So, the position may continue to exist in the HR hierarchy even though you the person who got laid off might not be the one who gets hired to fill it in the future. Fascinating. All right, so Bill Gurley, also, by the way, with the precision. uh, Yeah,
1: I just want to make one little note here. This is all very important for founders to understand when they get to call it hundreds of employees. The reason is there are very local acts. Uh, One of them is called the WARN Act. Worker Adjustment and Retaining Notification Act. This is for any employer, if you know, nonprofit, public, private, whatever you got to give 60 days notice of riffs. Uh, And there are tons of nuances, but it's just important to understand that you have to give notice. Now for tech companies, they've been so generous with severance of 60 days, you know, people give six months sometimes like,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: uh, so Mm -hmm. it doesn't apply. But I remember back in the day, there were some companies during the dot com era, that crashed so quickly, that the Warren Act and other things were brought up, because they had only given four weeks, it used to be in the industry, you gave four six weeks of severance, and people were like, man, screw these tech employees. Six weeks severance? I only got two. And then, you know, employee... The cash in our industry was so great in these war chests that people started giving absurd yeah. six-month severance for employees who could be hired the next day.
0: Actually, the Robin Hood severance uh, says people can stay on until October 1st. So I'm assuming that's probably Warn Act related.
1: Or, you know, one way to do these is... Um, you can, okay. This is another one that's a little bit weird. You can tell people we're going to get rid of your position. You're going to get one week of severance for every year of service. I think mm-hmm. that's like the ti- that's the that's what typical industries pretty do. standard. Yeah, pretty standard. So you you worked here for three years. You get three weeks of severance, uh, or you can work your job for the next three months. So you can pick. But if you do work the three months, you get twelve weeks, but you don't get three weeks of severance on top of that. So for businesses that are actually not like, you know, have 10s of billions of dollars or billions of dollars in cash laying around. That's typically how they do layoffs is they'll give Hmm. you the choice. Now it could be too weird, because now you got people in the factory who are losing their jobs, and you get this
0: like 12 week goodbye. That's a little weird. a Little awkward. Yeah, I'm nice to say goodbye. Yeah. I'm a little surprised that Robin Hood is keeping people on through October first only because my sense of kind of like when you have uh, reductions in force in an industry like finance, that usually it's sort of sensitive, sensitive enough that people are like, out the door.
1: Yeah, it could be, you know, you you do always have this, like, is somebody going to throw a wrench into the machinery? And that's why most HR people go with the, um, you know, you're, uh, you're no longer working at this company, effective right. immediately, you know, right. and when you go back to your desk, like, your email is not going to be turned on, just mm-hmm. because you really don't want an employee to make a rash decision. That's not so much to protect the company, I think. Because a company usually is going to be fine. It's actually kind of to protect the employee. You don't want somebody to, you know, go digitally postal where they, you know, mm-hmm. decide to tweet from the corporate account something. And then you got to sue them or they take right. a client list. Start you don't, insider
0: training like crazy, whatever. right? Trading like they're just front running trade. I mean, it's sort of like that's a. Yeah, that, that's true. an interesting. That is a very interesting choice to me in this specific case, because like. Hmm. But oh, and yeah, disclosure. I was an angel in Robinhood. I still own my shares. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm not trying to put you on the spot here.
1: No, no, I just want to make sure people, I, I don't have any inside information. The last time I talked to Vlad, I believe, was when he was on the podcast, on uh, All In during the whole GameStop stuff.
0: Yeah, Stan Hope is saying Molly's dead right. No financial company has people work out their severance. So yeah. I, maybe they're in different roles. I don't really know. Could but be it could be different roles. Yeah, it could be It's also. Support. And then Bill Gurley's note about this. Okay, um, back to Bill Gurley's note. Sorry, yeah, back no. to Bill Gurley's diverting. note. He said, if you're planning an RIF, a reduction in force, and haven't executed yet, please see this as a lesson. Robinhood did 9% in April, and now 23%. 5 to 10% riffs are all of the pain and none of the gain and are frequently followed by a 20 to 30% riff later. If you're going to do it, try to do it only once. So he was saying Robinhood should have cut deeper sooner.
1: Yes. I mean, yep. it's it's... It's good advice from uh, you know, Obi-Wan. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> He's been around for a while. Mm-hmm. Venture Obi-Wan, uh, aka Bill Gurley, uh, is right, you know. And yeah. the more I get to know him or, you know, I'm friends with him and the the more I see him actively talking about this stuff, the more respect I have for him. It's a hard thing to do though. I've been there. Exactly. I I, I when tough. I did my first layoffs, I did three. When I did my second one, <laughs> I did one. And I, I it's just hard to take the medicine because, you know, you, you're a founder, you optimize and you self select for hope for hope, and believing yeah. you can get out of it. And I believed I could, you know, get out of the tailspin and I couldn't, you know, and yeah. the problem is you don't want the tailspin to, you know, get really,
0: really, really bad. And
1: everybody dies. Uh, in this case, everybody dying is a metaphor for losing their jobs, not actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <So. laughs>
0: yeah, it's no, I, I mean, you can 100 percent empathize with. You know, Bill Gurley is basically saying, like, suck it up and take your medicine if you haven't already. And you can, But you can also 100% empathize with the idea that you want to believe that that things are going to get better or aren't as bad as, as they think. Robinhood CEO Vlad Tenev wrote in a blog post saying the previous layoffs did not go far enough in helping cut costs. He also said, quote, the reality is that we overhired, in particular, in some of our support functions. And then Robinhood also moved its Q2 result up a day earlier than scheduled revenue was 318 million dollars down 44% year over year ouch net loss 295 million that was 200 million less than it lost in q2 2021 and monthly active users and this is that real you know yep. number of, in terms of slowing growth we're down 34% year over year
1: which makes sense you know they yeah. they had gotten to 21 million i think was the peak if i remember correctly now they're at 14 million you got to think Twenty-five percent of people, fifty percent of people who were involved in stock or crypto trading uh, over the, over the boom years uh, would take a break, and maybe it's not for them, right? Right. And so, like Are they're gonna Peloton hold? users, or I think Match had a tough time with the reopening and dating is changing. So this is, these are the swings. Now, what will happen is uh, I'll be J-trading. Robinhood will become a sponsor of J-trading, uh, hopefully. <laughs> and uh, since I'm using it to do my J-trading. You're
0: going to single-handedly keep it alive. And uh, yeah, we'll just have a million. Volume. Yeah, Let's monthly go. actors
1: will go up a million a year as I J-trade uh, J- with J-trading. Is this so,
0: SBF's moment, by the way? Is this when Sam Bankman-Fried is going to swoop in and buy it?
1: Um, What's the market cap right now?
0: billion, billion.
1: 6 billion. I don't know if they have debt. So that's always something to look at. Remember, I was looking at Snap and I found it very attractive because of the 5 billion in cash. And then somebody DM'd me and was like, check the debt. And they had like 5 billion in debt or 4 or 5 billion in debt. And I was like, Mm -hmm. wait a second. So the cash they have is debt they drew down? It's like, yep. It's like, oh, okay. I'm learning something about J trading. (laughs) There's the valuation, (laughs) there's the cash on hand. And I was doing my little fun math. You know, okay, it's worth nine billion. They got six billion, so the enterprise value is three billion with fourteen million folks. Well, I don't know what the debt is at Robinhood, so I yeah. take the cat. You got to take the debt out of the cash because they got to pay that back.
0: Right. So, anyway, totally. I, uh, I'm looking. I don't see anything at the obviously at this moment. No discernible so this debt is that we can see.
1: The brilliance of the Robinhood team—they cashed themselves up when they could. When you can get cash in the bank and sit on it you know, like Apple, Google, Amazon, everybody who's got this cash laying around, you know, you don't have what's called the risk of ruin. And bankroll management is one of the keys to being a great gambler. Uh, You have to know how this is one of the reasons I haven't really gotten hurt playing in high stakes poker is because I have an idea of what my bankroll is, I set goals for myself and you know, I become more cognizant of it. I have other rich friends. Well, maybe are less cognizant of it. And I at times have been less cognizant of it, because the money doesn't matter to me. But you know, it's, it's big numbers when you're playing in big cash games. And you do need to be, you know, eyes wide open. And you shouldn't play in games where you have what's called the risk of ruin. So if your net worth was $100,000, and you were, I was playing in poker games where I saw people buy in for $100,000, like their entire net worth was on the table. So they can have the best hand on the flop, or, or even on the turn, and then the pr- other person has one out. You know, so somebody's got a set of aces, they have three aces, the other person has a set of kings, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, you got all your money in good, and then that person hit the king on the river. And now you've lost your entire net worth. Now, if you were playing with 10% of your net worth, the chances of that happening that what's called the case king, the final king in the in the deck, it's a 2% chance of that happening. Well, you can survive it because you have the other 90k. Mm-hmm. Right? You played perfectly, you want to be in that situation, you're a 98% favorite. Great. But you do have to watch out for the risk of ruin and like companies like Peloton and BuzzFeed as we've been looking at them as potential J trades do have the risk of ruin because they could run out of cash.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: and that's really the danger. And that's one of the reasons why I'm still long Robin, and I didn't sell my shares. I might buy more shares. Um, you know, I, I think they're a, a brilliant product, brilliant team, still the best product in the market. And I think they will get bought um, potentially. Hopefully they can defend themselves against getting bought and keep building this for 10 years. That's my yeah.
0: hope. I mean, $6 billion in cash is a really big moat, as you've been saying. The stock is up over 13% today as a result of the reduction in force news. Investors do like that kind of discipline. So you might have missed your chance to get a deal on the J-Trade.
1: I, I mean, I have some already, but I think it's a good J-Trade, actually. Yep. I, uh, I may, And this is not an investment advice, uh, and I have a position. <laughs> I feel Christmas. Like like that's always
0: like, that's followed by picking up the phone. <laughs> no, no, I don't want to peer pressure you. <laughs> hold, on. Uh, <laughs> thing thing
1: through, hold on a second hold on a second the, the j trades are brought to you by these three dollar
0: readers on amazon <laughs> <laughs> Glad, for those of you who are not glasses watching on. the video glasses on means i mean dimes. come on man have you guys used robin hood they're just trolling
1: me i think they reduced the i think flat reduced the font in robin hood this week just to troll me User privacy is one of the biggest topics in tech right now. And if you care about your privacy, you need to use Brave. Brave is an amazing browser that shields you from ads, trackers, and other creepy stuff that follows you across the web. Well, how do you protect against that? They have three core products at Brave the core browser, an incredible search engine, and its browser native crypto wallet. The Brave browser has over 60 million users today and 1000s of daily downloads. And it's built on Chromium, which is the open source Chrome project. So you're going to be familiar with it, all your favorite Chrome extensions are going to work in Brave. But it's three times faster than Chrome. Why? Because Brave doesn't bog you down with all those ads and cookies and trackers. You can import your bookmarks, you can import your passwords, all your settings from Chrome are going to move over to Brave with one quick click and it doesn't track your website visits searches or your clicks i had brave's co-founder brendan Ike, on the program he created javascript he co-founded the mozilla firefox foundation and he was a technical lead at netscape huh he's got a pretty great track record and brave is becoming quite a phenomenon out there i want you to just try brave search it's truly private and an independent search engine go download brave today brave brave.com great domain name slash twist brave.com slash twist to browse faster search privately and do so much more all in a single click my lord look at my j trading i am
0: glasses on my J trading did i call the bottom?
2: nick point of privilege did i call the bottom it's it's hard to say if that was the bottom but it was a bottom it was a, a bottom yeah. tell you what it was a bottom yeah i, I uh, think the uh the, you being perhaps the only person in the public markets that actually made money off of Stitch Fix is probably a good, <laughs> good signal of that. I yes, you might have. I'm come an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> we should
1: pull up my J trades. Just a point of privilege here. Look at this. Stitch Fix, 5,000 shares. I'm up 800 bucks. My Disney 250 shares. I'm up 1300. My Amazon 1000 shares. I'm up eight grand and my Warner Brothers. I'm already up 1500. I bought that yesterday. So yeah, I made like, uh, what is this? 10.
0: 15, I don't know, 14,
1: just under 15. Yeah, Yeah. okay, great. Well, I'm going out. Let's just by next week, I'll be able to pay for my private jet (laughs) to Mexico City.
0: I'll add you to the dinner reservation.
1: I I mean, I want to be intellectually honest about what I'm doing with J trading. To be clear, what I'm doing with J trading is I want to become a world class public market investor. Because that will give me the ability to understand private markets even better. The full life cycle of a company. Number two, I want to make returns. I think there's a unique opportunity to make returns. So, one, I want to learn. Two, I want to make returns. Three, I think it's going to be entertaining uh, for the audience and educational for the audience. Uh, so, there's like a trifecta here. Mm-hmm. Also, it's a way for me to get some of these CEOs of these companies on the program.
0: Mm -hmm. If I'm being
1: totally honest, it's a four D chess.
0: That was the four.
1: Well, I mean, if I want to have, like, if I'm buying or not buying snap, maybe Evan Spiegel will finally come on the program. Right. I think this is, I mean, (laughs) why do people go on Jim Cramer? Mad money. Yeah. Well, he's, he affects the stock price. Right. I think I'm going to impact stock prices because I think people are not because of who I am, Molly. But because of our the thoroughness of the J Trades, the intellectual honesty of the J Trades. Interesting. Okay, I'm in. Let's go. If we do a really thorough job and we pick winners, like I want if out of 10, I want at, at a minimum seven of them to be great trades, in that they're up. I want seven out of ten to be great trades. And when they're dogs and they're not working, I'm going to unwind those trades.
2: That seems to go against the whole point of the 10-year outlook, though, because you're going to have natural dogs just based on market fluctuations from great companies. Like, you still think is a great company, but if you bought it six months ago, you'd be, like, pulling your hair out right now under that view.
1: Right, and this is where, this is not investment advice, (laughs) but I want to be able to make mistakes and unwind trades based on new information.
0: All right, so uh, Bitcoin enthusiast, Michael Saylor. I like Under-
1: understatement of the year. Enthusiast. Like, enthusiast. <laughs> exactly. leader?
0: That's like I'm an enthusiast about breathing. Yeah. Oxygen yeah. enthusiast. <laughs> Big oxygen enthusiast, Michael Saylor is uh anyway, uh Michael Saylor is stepping down oh. as MicroStrategy CEO to become executive chairman. Mm-hmm. Now, for uh context, Michael Saylor has been the CEO of MicroStrategy for 33 years. He started the company in 1989, took it public in 1998. He will now assume this role of executive chairman and remain the chairman of the board. There is an ongoing question about whether this is, in fact, related to Bitcoin, because uh, MicroStrategy, of course, went from being like a, what is it, a chip company? I don't even know.
1: Business intelligence company. So,
0: went from being a business intelligence company to uh, basically a massive uh, hoover of Bitcoin. And- at at this exact moment, I think is down something like nine hundred million dollars on Bitcoin. So the stock market, as you might imagine, is reacting pretty well to Michael Saylor stepping down as CEO. The stock is up about thirteen and a half percent, and MicroStrategy just released earnings, which were like fine. For the software side of things, revenue was 120, $122.1 million, down 2.6% year-over-year gross profit, was $97 million because it is, in fact, still a very high-margin software business. Their but actual business. Their actual business, the their regular actual business.
1: one. As opposed to their treasury business, which is holding Bitcoin. Right. <laughs> which he frames, Molly, as a treasury business. But in reality, what he did with this was he took his you know, a meandering software company, obviously, it's mm-hmm. been around for a long time. And it's not broken out to some crazy amount of revenue. It's still more money than any of my companies ever made. So congratulations. Yep. But it's, it's, you know, it's barely a public company, let's be honest, he then bought, got all these loans, bought tons of Bitcoin, and essentially created an ETF, a shell company, a Bitcoin, mm-hmm. which I don't know how that's exactly legal because I thought like they weren't doing Bitcoin ETFs um, or crypto ETFs. But he when he's framed. He, he's created a an treasure. ETF so
0: that you can invest in
1: the micro well, by,
0: Bitcoin holdings.
1: Well, no, by taking micro strategies, a shell company, essentially,
0: a, I see. So if you invest company. in MicroStrategy, you're effectively you're, investing in a Bitcoin ETF. That's all point. you're doing it, by investing it, got in got MicroStrategy.
1: Nobody's investing in MicroStrategy for the MicroStrategy business intelligence business. We
0: we'll had $97 million in gross profit in Q2.
1: Okay, whatever. I mean, it's <laughs> fine. I mean, it's, yes, it's no if Google you are
2: in at this point. Shout out to all the people at MicroStrategy staying focused on the actual business <laughs> throughout right? all of this crazy Serious shout out. bless them. <laughs> no,
1: but look, the stock was flatlined. Look, this is a dead it patient. Really was. Look at that. This wow. is the ambulance is driving. And they're like, you know what, we don't this we're, we're gonna we're gonna call it in the ambulance like we can take our time we could stop and get coffee. Uh, on the way to the emergency room this patient is dead <laughs> it was flatlined
0: yeah no and it then was somewhere
1: around 2020 he starts buying up bitcoin and 2021 this thing spikes up to a thousand dollars a share mm-hmm. because people were buying it based on the price of bitcoin so if you were to take this chart that we're looking at of micro strategies stock price, stock price. Mm-hmm. yeah and if we did the market cap would probably be even more um Uh, illustrative of this, I'm sure the market cap parallels their Bitcoin holdings value. Yeah, because that's basically what you're buying is a bunch of Bitcoin
0: and they own a lot of Bitcoin. Right. And so when we say a bunch of Bitcoin, here's what we mean. Just as a reminder, as of June 30th, the company owned two billion dollars in Bitcoin. That is one hundred and twenty nine thousand six hundred Bitcoins at an average price of fifteen thousand dollars. Wow, it's really down. Uh, The digital asset impairment charges reported in the q2 earnings, basically how much they lost from Bitcoin $918 million for the quarter, so lost almost a billion dollars.
1: So yeah, listen, the, the they were they were buying, I think forty fifty thousand $50,000 Bitcoins. So obviously, when it went down to 17, there was all this talk about them getting liquidated. And I think the total number of Bitcoins will eventually be 21 million, right? That's, mm-hmm, all, there that's yeah, all there are, that's all there will ever be. Correct. Now, there is a theory that a third of these are lost. So if it's really, let's say 15 million, and he owns 129, he owns 1% of the active Bitcoins. Yeah, you know, we don't know the number of dead Bitcoins. I think some people have tracked that because the original wallets own so much. And there is a theory, Molly, that Satoshi or the group of people who are Satoshi, the reason that those wallets never sold their coins is not because they don't want their coins, the coins never moved out of those wallets, it's because they lost them. Mm-hmm. So there might be this incredible embarrassment mm-hmm. by the person who created Bitcoin, or they're just incredibly savvy that they don't want to uncloak themselves, even though they have, I don't know how many billion, billions tens of, of billions dollars. of dollars, right. you know, like the what percentage of the original wallets own is like this big question. And then why have they never moved? Mm-hmm. My theory is, they've never moved because people were just screwing around with the software, yeah. and they yeah. never wrote down the passwords. Because so they're like, well, this is just a project. And then all of a sudden, they're sitting there going, oh, my God. Imagine if I came public and I had $30 billion or $40 billion in Bitcoin, and I can never get to it. Oh,
0: my yep. Lord. Or they passed away. Or, right. Oh, like yeah, that's the other theory is that they right? could be I dead. Mean, they right? could have died. Yeah. Like or the, maybe the they gave them. Like, ask anyone in LA. It's one guy and he's dead. Which okay. extra jobs, like, DM us later. I like the I
1: like the dead. I like the dead or government conspiracy. Like, it's a government agency. That's it's part of the conspiracy. I mean, that's
0: just more fun. I love that one. What's interesting is that Saylor, again, is remaining executive chairman. This does not appear to be what you might think at first blush, right? MicroStrategy loses a billion dollars. This guy steps away as CEO, becomes executive chairman. Clearly, they're going to go in a different direction, right? However... Uh, The new CEO, Fong Lei, said, I would like to reinforce our commitment to our customers, shareholders, partners, and employees, and I look forward to leading the organization for the long-term health and growth of our enterprise software and Bitcoin acquisition strategies. And as executive chairman, Michael Saylor appears to actually just be freed from the pesky work of building any of the enterprise software, because he said on Twitter, in my next job, I intend to focus more on Bitcoin. Uh, we have to have Michael. On, we have to have Michael on the do?
1: program. He slid into my DMs. Yeah. Um, so we'll have him on. Are you a small business owner? Did you know that Visa's online small business hub has tools, discounts and resources to help you run your business. So whether you're a business beginner or an entrepreneurial expert, find the solutions, tools and tips you need to help take your business to the next level. Plus, if you have a Visa business credit card or debit card, you can get access to cardholder benefits like Visa Savings Edge, a savings program which can help you save on everyday business expenses like office essentials, travel, and more. When you enroll your Visa business card in Visa Savings Edge, you'll have access to valuable offers, which can help turn qualifying business purchases made with your enrolled Visa business card into savings for your business. Learn more at Visa.com slash small business hub. Once again, that's visa.com slash small business hub visa, a network working for everyone. I this is my prediction. They're going to sell off the SaaS business, and then make this a Bitcoin holding company of some type, or they he's going to move up to exec chair because he the person who is this new CEO, my understanding is he was president CFO, and they got a new CFO. So Michael was explaining it on CNBC this morning, I happened to catch it. Uh, that now that this they have a CFO and the president CFO can move up to CEO president, whatever. So putting all that together, what I feel like is going on here is they are going to go on some sort of splitting this up, or going into an M&A structure. So how would that work? Pretty simple. If they can make this an ETF, essentially, or some mm-hmm. sort of Bitcoin holding company, where they buy crypto Bitcoin assets, like let's say, there were tools or whatever in the Bitcoin space. He could those start buying those, and then he could take this business and then sell it off and let it stand on its own and have its management team, etc. Yeah. So there's something corporate going on here. Usually, there's like this is the first card. The first card was getting a CFO. The second card was him moving up. There's going to be a third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh card. You know, there's yeah. going to be seven cards here, and I think we know two of them right now. So more cards to come, and we'll keep an eye on it. But yeah. he might wind up being like. One of the smartest people in all of this crypto space because Bitcoin is in, enduring. And, you know, we we sat here going, oh, it's going to go down to 5,000. And I was like, yeah, I, I don't know about that. But uh, here we are. It's going back up again uh, in the face of this crypto collapse. Molly, I don't know if you're watching, but it was up
0: to like almost
1: 23,000 the other oh, day. Oh, yeah.
0: My baby Coinbase based portfolio is up to like $600. Oh, wow. After a low, low of 400. Yeah. <laughs> So here you go. You're, you may <laughs> my, you may trade. My may trade. My may trade. <laughs> <You> may trade. <laughs> my may trades are killing it. Yeah. Speaking of trading, let's quickly talk about Airbnb estimates, if we may, um, or earnings rather, because we had an interesting conversation yesterday about Airbnb and its durability and its revenue moat. Like, what are the dials that it can turn? Mm -hmm. So Airbnb slightly missed on estimates for revenue, and then shares were down as much as 9% in after hours trading on Tuesday, despite huge profits. Mm -hmm. The stock has recovered now to only being down 1.5% on Wednesday to a $72 billion market cap. Gross bookings, as you might imagine, were up about $17 billion, up 27% year over year because people are actually going places again. That's phenomenal. Revenue, though, did slightly miss. It was, I mean, (laughs) I hate to say it slightly missed because it was up 58%. Yeah, to I don't, $1 billion. Like, why do we even the miss thing is well, just I don't like care weird, about these estimates. Like, I, I just care, a, like, I can make my hundle. own decision.
1: Who cares right. about the analyst estimates? I know it was up 58% year over a 58% yum yum. I understand it. It does people base their trades on what the analysts are expecting.
0: But I don't understand this tradition. This I, is I, mean, why I like to make my own decision. I think stopped. Anyway, um, anyway what is it? So a couple interesting notes, right? Like, when we look at what is working for Airbnb, one of the things uh, that they noted was that so nights and experiences booked 103.7 million. Long term stays increased 25 percent year over year and 90 percent from Q2 2019. So interesting trend, and I don't know how long it will last. Right? Is that this remote work?
1: I want to know how thing, much experiences is, is versus nights. I, I wish do they, would break I those if they broke those that out. Mm-hmm. I don't think they do. That would be really cool to know that business. It's kind of like, remember, Apple wouldn't share the services business until it right. got to be significant, and then they started sharing it. They're like, "Oh no, we're a services business. We ha- we're not just hardware." Um, but yeah, those long term stays are juicy.
0: They are. I, I, will that persist yes.
1: as a trend? Yes. I wonder. Yeah. No,
0: nomadic is going to
1: persist for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, other people have to go back to work, but not tech workers everybody else is going back to work. The tech workers seem to still have the upper hand. Now with all these layoffs and riffs. That's what I wonder, I wonder how Mm. long people are going to be able to? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, other interesting things to note, Airbnb is also preparing for a $2 billion share buyback to offset dilution from employee stock bonuses via Bloomberg and then said, we are so, they said, quote, we're so confident in our long-term growth and profitability that today we are announcing a $2 billion share repurchase program. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So they believe they're <laughs> Someone underlined. was like, "Day trade hmm.
1: Well, hmm. Yeah. there's two ways to, this is my understanding. I'd like to get an education on this you really have to dig into these buybacks. Because some people yeah. i be interested in your position on this, Molly, some people say people do buybacks, when they feel their shares are underpriced. And it's like, they would they, they think by buying them and reducing the total number of shares.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, that's good for the company or well, for the shareholders of the company, which includes management and the public shareholders and employees and everybody. They can't find a better use for it. In other words, building more products spending on marketing, not as good as buying your own share and reducing the share pool, which should be right put the price up. other people say it's manipulation. And Mm. you're just trying to make the stock price go up by getting rid of them. Now for somebody like Apple who just keeps printing money. Yeah, doing share buybacks seems like a healthy thing to do. um, Because what else they can't figure out what else to do with the money. Because it's just so much money sloshing around. I don't know if that's where Airbnb is. Do they have that much money? especially around but here's a very interesting chart because we're talking about Uber versus Airbnb. Now, Airbnb is profitable and has free cash flow and they have had for a little bit. Um, Now if you look at the this is from Y charts thanks to the folks at Y charts they're not a sponsor yet, but they should be Um, I need a charting sponsor for J trading (coughs) PS ratio price to sales ratio. Yeah, the purple is Airbnb. They were trading at 36 times at the peak of this madness 36 wow. times their sales, not their earnings. Mileage, this isn't a price earnings ratio, right? Sales. And then you know, you look at Uber, it was much less 2.7 times their uh, sales, and maybe it got up to 10 or whatever. And, and this is the compression that happened in the market. But you'll see that the two companies have it started to narrow why my theory on that would be because Uber now is taking free cash flow more seriously. They're going to try to get up to that Airbnb, and because you know, uh, and, and Uber has that faster growth. So we'll see what happens. But you know, there there are price mismatches in the market on this price to sales. And I think Airbnb is a, was a real darling. I think Coinbase was a real darling. And if you look at Coinbase's price to sales and Robinhood hoods, and like they were also extraordinary. People were really pricing in a lot of growth, a lot of growth. And you know, they're they've seen movies like. Google, and Facebook, and Amazon, and when you and Apple and Microsoft before that, when you see those movies, and you think well, one of these companies is going to be like those, or a couple of them will be like the next version of those trillion dollar companies. That's when people get excited. And maybe these things start getting a little out of whack. Or that's the, my theory on why people are making those bets. Would love to hear your feedback, Jason at calacanis.com for life.
2: Mm-hmm. This is Robin Hood and Coinbase uh, price to sales over time.
1: Yeah, so you
2: just see it's, it's come
1: way down people were looking at those businesses as like, they're never going to stop growing, right? Right. Um, and right. they were up in the 20s. And then whoop, right back down regression to the mean five 2.6 for Coinbase and five for Yeah. And that there was where they both got in sync, which is kind of interesting as well. And now people are giving Robinhood a slight edge on Coinbase, which makes sense given Coinbase is legal issues. And, you know, stocks are a more um, resilient market, let's say, than mm-hmm. crypto it makes total sense. Right. So it's I like these pairings to try to, I'd like to start doing these pairings on Disney, and um, my uh, Warner Brothers Discovery, and Netflix, right start Mm -hmm. to understand those, right. And this is what we're going to do here on the J trading segments. But congratulations to Airbnb on having a kick ass business, by the way, and Joe Gabby is uh, retired now. He left. So congrats to Joe on an incredible run. He actually came up with the idea.
0: Yeah. All right. And that's it uh, for the news segment next up. Is the oh. blueprint? Oh, today, am I doing the blueprint? Great. Yep, Jason's going to cover part four, mm. which I cannot wait to listen to. Having a bias mm. for action.
1: Hey, everybody! It's time for part four of my ten-part miniseries. We're calling the blueprint. What is the blueprint? Well, it's how to have a great career. That's all it is. It's just career advice for you. If you're listening to this podcast this week in startups, you are probably want to be an entrepreneur, capital allocator and you probably want to be successful in your career. So this is not just based on like what I learned in my career, my career has gone, okay. Um, I also have been recording this week and started for 1500 episodes, I've done conferences, I was a journalist. And a lot of my friends are way more successful than me. In fact, my friends tend to be some of the most successful people on the planet. Therefore, I've watched firsthand how people become successful. And this uh, part for today might wind up being the most important one you ever here. In fact, this could be this could be the 10 minutes of your life that changes everything for you. Because there is a segment of people who need to hear this. Now in part one, we did branding yourself with a breakout skill, critically important part two, we did when to quit your job. Part three, I did building and leveraging a network that one got a lot a lot of great feedback. But today, I'm going to talk to you about creating versus waiting also known as having a bias for action and really We'll title this episode The Benefits of a Bias for Action. I think that's really what this is about. Now, you've probably heard this term, a bias for action. This is having an emphasis on the need to take action. Now, you can daydream about your life and having a better job. I did that when I was on the train going into Manhattan, thinking about my career. Uh, but the people who actually take action and create something in the world are the ones who generate massive wealth change the world and become legendary, right? So let's get right into it. The framework I want to talk to you about was uh, codified by Amazon wasn't origin. it didn't originate with Amazon. But Amazon is some of the most thoughtful individuals in terms of thinking about thinking. This is called cognitive, uh, or meta, right cognitive like cognition thinking. So there are cognitive uh, frameworks, cognitive biases, the way people look at the world and the way they think really does matter. Now, I'm not talking about manifesting or some, you know, alternative nonsense like that. What I'm talking about is uh, the principle of taking action. Now you've heard about Amazon's 16 leadership principles. These are the things that they uh, will reflect on when they're having a discussion or a debate where they're trying to make a decision, customer obsession, ownership, invest and simplify, learn and be curious, hire and develop the best. You can read about these things. But you know, buried in there is a bias for action. And they describe it as speed matters in business. And sometimes people will not say a bias for action when they describe it, they'll just say product velocity speed matters. You'll hear these terms amongst the entrepreneur and capital allocator class. Why do you keep hearing this? Well, because we see it every day, we see the companies that are frozen, and don't make decisions and don't take action, die, And the people who are stagnant and don't make decisions, they die. And what you realize is people have inherently a bias to do nothing, they have a bias to freeze. There's many theories on why this is, you know, you see a predator, you don't make a decision or making no decision is better than making a decision. We'll get into that in a minute. But in business and in your career, you need to understand that speed matters and that many decisions and actions are actually reversible, and don't need extensive study. Now, there are some like what college am I going to go to? Okay, this seems like Oh, my God, this is the craziest decision. Or what career should I pick? The truth is, some people will spend so much time thinking about what career they'll never actually start a career, they'll never actually take a job. So they'll sit there making lattes, while they try different, you know, night courses, or they read books, but they never actually go take a job, it would be better to just go take the sales job go take the product management job, the PR job, whatever job it is, and just get a feel for what those are. And if you love them, keep going. And if not, you can reverse them. And you want to really create value by calculated risk taking, the risks that you take are the ones that create the value. So just keep that in your mind as we talk about this. So Amazon breaks down these three points uh, to create buy in, right? So when they explain the why they give factual insights. Speed matters in business. Okay, great. Then they try to teach a lesson or educate you. Many actions are reversible, you don't need extensive study. And then finally, Amazon creates a value a principle, we value calculated risk taking. So that's how they will explain this to you, right? Speed matters. Okay, I got it. Many decisions are reversible, you don't need to study it, you don't need to overthink it. Great. Okay, that makes sense as well. And then they create a value inside their company. So when you're working on your company or yourself, you should have some value system. And you might have heard Michael Jordan say, Hey, you miss 100% of shots you don't take or I miss more shots than anybody in the history of the NBA, yada, yada. That's calculated risk taking thinking. The BFA bias for action is related to other cognitive biases. The status quo bias is uh, has existed for a long time. And it basically says, new ideas are not that much different than existing ones, people would feel safer. To just very modestly increment what happened previously. I saw this firsthand when newspapers were looking at the internet. You know what they did? They took the design of a newspaper and they put it on websites. I kid you not. And so they would show you a front page and you would move your mouse around with a magnifying glass to read it. And then in a story, it would say continued on page 26. You click it and it would make a motion and an animation of the newspaper flipping 26 pages. And you're like, well, you could have just let people scroll to the end of the story, you don't need to use a jump. Right? That's this status quo bias. When people made the first cars, you know, with a a, an ice engine, they looked exactly like the ones with horses, they just got rid of the horses, and people were sitting on the hoods of the cars. And you're like, wait, this makes no sense. Again, this incrementalism, the status quo bias people will stick to what they already know, they don't want to make a radical change. But the businesses that really break out, really do make radical changes. um, As opposed to this incrementalism, which equals a slow death, there's also the sunken cost fallacy. Now, if you have been doing something over and over again for a long time, like your startup, you know, is invested in this tech project, or this certain customer base, or you invested in a stock, or you're uh, investing in private companies, and you keep doing bridge rounds, You will look at the money you've put into this and the time, the effort, and you won't want to make a change. Because you've got this sunken cost, whereas somebody else will come along and say, Well, I don't have a sunken cost, I'm just going to start a new company with this better idea. And often, these two when they're combined together, create this real lock in inside an organization, and inside a person who's trying to build a career. I'm a journalist, I can't be an investor. Oh, well, I'm a journalist, I can't be an entrepreneur. When I looked at it, I was like, well, I'm, a, I'm an IT person. Why can't I be a journalist? I know about this tech. Uh, and am I a journalist now? Why can't I be an investor or a company creator? I didn't actually have the sunken cost fallacy or the status quo bias. I was just thinking I could do anything. Why not? Why not me was what I always asked myself. Somebody has to figure this out. Why not me? And you have to break these cognitive biases that get cemented over time. There's also the confirmation bias. Okay, and the confirmation bias is that you seek out facts that confirm your existing belief. So you're like, well, this is how newspapers have always worked. That's why they have to work this way on the web. This is how e commerce always worked. This is how transportation always worked. This is how trading stocks always work. Of course, you have to pay a fee. We can't have free trades. And then somebody will break the mold. And then they will go much further in their careers and their companies, their products will be more innovative. And you can always again, back to Amazon's point, you can always reverse bad decisions. There's very few decisions that have the risk of ruin. If your decision is, I want to climb mountains, like Alex Honnold without a rope, okay. (laughs) That's a stupid decision, all due respect to Alex and his tremendous talent. It's still a stupid decision. Because we could be sitting here just as easily and never even know the name Alex. Honnold because he could have died the first time he tried to climb a mountain without a rope because he put his hand on some bird poop and slipped off. Like that's how bad that decision was because of the risk of ruin. Now, there's also a theory called norm theory, what norm theory states, uh, and this was actually a paper by Daniel Kahneman in the 80s. And this is where a lot of this got started, is that making no decision sometimes is the optimal decision. And they did a study of goalies, it turned out a lot of goalies would be best served sitting in the middle of the goal, and not jumping either way until the ball got struck. But they would try to figure out which way the ball was going to go when the person was running to the ball to kick it, and they would jump a certain direction, they had this bias towards action. Now, why did they have that? Well, it turns out if you do nothing, sometimes that's an optimal theory. But other times you may not like living with the results of what your behavior was. So if you did nothing, and the ball went past you, everybody's gonna look at you and go, hey, schmuck, you did nothing, right? You just sat there and did nothing. So goalies just picked the direction, they kind of jumped out, they made their best guess at it. Statistically, that was a, a bias that people had to get over. But then there's other times where people do not take a chance. And this is where startups are different they didn't take a product chance. They didn't take a chance to go after a new customer to change the name of their company to change their business model to go from business to business to consumer or consumer to business to business. They didn't make a change. Because they thought, okay, if I make that change, and it's audacious, and I fail, can I live with everybody laughing at me, essentially? Can I live with the stigma of having made this change? And you know what? Yeah, you grow up in Brooklyn. And you say, Hey, I want to Start my own magazine, you know, and people laughed at me. I said, I wanted to be a black belt. I wanted to run a marathon. I had people laugh at me. I had people in my own family laugh at me. Like, you will get this from the people around you, and it can put into your brain this risk taking aversion where you say, you know what? If I take that risk and I fail, man, I'm going to look really bad. It's better I just stay in my lane. I'll do X, whatever the safe thing to do is. And so, being just aware that norm theory exists could change your entire way of going out in the world. And the way I would look at this is if you're an attorney and you decided to be a venture capitalist. I've talked to attorneys who want to be venture capitalists. For it. If it doesn't work, do you think you're going to still need startup lawyers in the world to be able to get another job? They're like absolutely. I'm like well then why wouldn't you try? And they're like uh, I'm not sure if I'll, you know. They don't even actually know why they're not trying, but the real reason is they're afraid they're going to fail. And no gamble, no future. This bias reaction comes from The Marine Corps, they develop a bias for action, um, and they define it as a combination of willingness to take initiative, act boldly, and accept risk. This is long before Amazon, um, you know, made this part of their operating philosophy. And the value of this cannot be overstated in wartime. The twenty, and I'm just going to read you a little bit about this. The 27th Commandant of the Marine Corps, General Robert H. Barrow, spoke to a group of soon-to-be commissioned officers and emphasized individual audacity as the key to future success. He defined audacity as boldness of thought and action, which often contradicts established wisdom, we must cultivate the audacity to conceive bold strikes, and the guts to carry them out. The more opportunity that can be provided to develop a bias for action, and the less barriers to bold thoughts and action, the more successful, successful officers we will breed. Therefore, developing our habit of thought is just as important as developing our technical proficiency. In other words, the Marines train people who are on the ground to make these uh, decisions in real time and make audacious ones and have a bias for action because it wins wars. Full stop. And the people who get frozen like that goalie in that situation, not moving might be the better one. So I'm sure there are situations where the Marines sitting tight might be the right decision. But a bias towards action and making bold decisions is what typically wins wars not sitting back and doing nothing. And that's why in startups, we look for that. That's why people like Reid Hoffman have said, like, if you're not embarrassed by your first version, and you waited too long to release it, you really have to get the ball moving. And what a bias for action does is it also will bring more people to rally behind you. People want to see people with a bias towards action succeed in the world, they're attracted to it. It's not nothing attractive about somebody who just sits there and you know, does year 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 15, 20 of this career where they're not growing. Um, Nobody's really like, you know, throwing parties or writing stories about that person, they're writing stories, and they're backing more importantly, giving money to and going to work for people who take those bold actions, right? And they, the bold actions win the worst, whether it's in startups or in actual real life. And this is where the second framework comes in. This is where you can really apply it if you're at a startup is product velocity. We meet a lot of people with ideas. I meet too many people with ideas, the ideas mean zero, they do not change the world. And I, a great idea can change the world if somebody executes on it, you need to actually build or create something. So you have to stop waiting. And you just have to build something. And if you're in a position to quit your current job and go build something, where uh, you want to do it on your weekend, watch blueprint one and two if you aren't sure. But I talk about like, you know, sort of frameworks for when you should actually quit or how to quit or how to move on to your next idea while you still have your existing ide- job if you need to make money. Um, but really, One of the key metrics my team evaluates when we're looking at investing in something is how has the product changed since we first met this entrepreneur? What's changed? And so you know, if you've got investors using a test flight app, if they see you sending an email with new features, and they see the app getting updated, and in the notes, you explain what's being updated, it becomes addicting to people, the change log becomes how people make their decision to invest the people who investors invest in are people who are iterating on that same product over and over and over again, and getting in front of as many customers as possible and pushing that rock up the hill. Sure, you want to gather feedback, that's fine. But remember, there's another statement we say all the time done is better than perfect, or don't let perfection be the enemy of progress. The speed is much better than perfect when it comes to the competition to build great companies you want to build, you want to talk to customers, you want to iterate. Um, Of course, if you make too many features, you can delete old ones, right? That's they can become a distraction, they can become what's called technical debt in our industry, you have to keep up with them. So don't be afraid to kill something that's not working. Uh, That is also a bias to action, a biased action is saying this isn't working, we're going to stop it a bias to action, you know, hey, we're going to go do this. Um, That's basically a philosophy you want to have a body in motion stays in motion, as Newton said, startup, in motion stays in motion, you need to build a culture of constantly building stuff and innovating. If you listen to this podcast, this week in startups, you see I'm constantly trying new ideas like the blueprint, like VC Sunday School like J trading, I want to try different things, see what sticks what connects with an audience, all in podcast was but one example of that, you know, the conferences, we've started remote demo day, I'm constantly trying new ideas. Some stick, some don't, we can deprecate others, and we can build others up and double down on them. I hope this has been helpful for you. And think about you know, what risks you are taking, and what biases you have. And maybe what's keeping you from taking that big leap or that jump or going after a bold idea or canceling your last idea, shutting it down and moving on to the next big idea. A bias first action is absolutely essential. If you want to have an epic life and you want to do great things in the world. So I hope this has been helpful. If you have a friend who maybe is a little stagnant, you can send them this clip. Maybe it helps them shake something loose and go on and be the best version of themselves. All right, thanks for tuning in to The Blueprint.